Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. So for our next panel, uh, we're going to be talking about scaling machine learning in the traditional enterprise. So for that, I'm excited to introduce uh, my friend Josh Bloom to moderate the panel. Josh? Thank you so much uh, for coming to this panel. We've got a real treat today, not just because we have three really interesting panelists, but because of their background and where they work, we're going to get to see a bunch of different perspectives here. And sort of my challenge as a moderator is to make sure that we're not all just agreeing with each other. So I'm going to be trying to stir up some, uh, some controversy. So let me invite the panelists up here. And then um, once they take their seat, I'll have them uh, give a little brief intro to themselves, and then we'll, we'll kick this off. Amr, why don't you get us started? Okay, my name is uh, Amr Awadala, and uh, I'm one of the founders uh, of Cloudera and uh, the chief technology officer for the company. And briefly, for those that don't know Cloudera, uh, we do uh, management for uh, data analytics and machine learning, uh, enabling enterprises to leverage what we call the enterprise data cloud, which works both across on-premise and multiple cloud environments. Hi, my name is Pallav. I'm the director of data science at Levi Strauss, uh, everyone's beloved denim maker. Um, I started there about a couple years ago and uh, kind of started like the data science AI function there um, and uh, sort of have been focusing on building a lot of different solutions for the company and like really just driving the transformation from like your standard enterprise into a more data-driven enterprise. Hi, my name is Jürgen. I'm one of Accenture's global lead data scientists. I'm looking after the resources industry, so oil and gas, mining, chems, and everything which is dirty. And my team is looking into what we call industrial analytics solution, where we try to help, specifically helping this industry to make it more sustainable, and especially bringing that also the solution to scale. Um, and my name is Josh Bloom. I'm a professor in astrophysics at UC Berkeley. I had a startup which is called Wise.io. I was a CTO and co-founder there, uh, which got acquired by GE. And so I served as a vice president of data analytics there for a number of years. And now I'm back at the university. Um, so one of the interesting tasks, I think, of this panel is for us to drill down a little bit beyond the generic challenges of digital transformation across all different industries and start thinking about and having a conversation about what's, what's different. Um, so the first question, which I'll, I'll ask Amr to address, because you are, uh, in some sense, selling across all different types of industries, is what makes these traditional enterprises different in how you sell, how you talk uh, to them, what their problems are, relative to what we'll call sort of the, the modern companies that grew up in the digital age? The talent. The talent is very different. The mix of the talent that they have is not the same kind of talent that you'd find here at Google or Facebook or whatever. And uh, that's where we need to make a lot of uh, tools and automation around this technology to make it easier for that talent to consume the technology. And I, I, I would say that's the main uh, key difference. Uh, the other key difference is culturally just learning how to uh, adapt to machine learning and AI. And one key thing that we stress to them is you need to keep in mind that unlike other uh, traditional software projects, I'm going to build a web app that does this or a mobile app that does that or a automate a certain uh, workflow function within my organization. ML projects, we like to equate them a bit more to startups and running a startup portfolio. When you're running a startup portfolio, 
you have a bunch of very good ideas in the startup portfolio, but only one of them is going to work. Maybe two are going to work. And, and, and it's very important to be able to iterate quickly. And, and the same thing happens with ML projects. We have a good hunch that this might be a good project. We're going to start it, but we don't know. After, after a few months, it might actually turn out to be not good. So to change their mentality from the, from the not just waterfall and agile, but even a step further to fully iterative portfolio management of projects is a very key change that we advise these traditional organizations organizations to start adapting to. Good. Um, Jürgen, can you say a bit from your perspective um, at Accenture, what, um, what you see is that, is, it, is, it, is talent the key issue or are there other, there are other challenges? So talent is definitely a big challenge because these organizations, when you look at their IT departments and the departments where these solutions have to be actually used, they are not prepared. They're coming from a very classic data warehousing enterprise BI background, and that's what they are living in. So now you, you're you challenging them to, to switch to a complete new topic, and um, that is, that's a barrier in their head. And the other thing is what then very often got forgotten. Yes, they managed to build a solution, but they managed to forget to talk to the operations teams who have to actionize and use it. So they are suddenly have people, they're throwing that over the fence and say, here it is, uh, it's cool, it helps drive value, but the operation sits there and says, you have never asked me what I, what is the heck, what should I do with that? And then you, it is three times wrong and they say, thank you, we're not using it anymore. So this this transformational part on the, the people side is very often completely underestimated and leads then that actually good machine learning solutions have no success because People doesn't know how to use it, or they were never ever asked before how to use it. Yeah, that's an interesting view of talent. Usually when we talk about talent, we think about the people that are going to build these things, but you're also saying the people that are already there have to learn how to accept it and uh, become more efficient with it and and, and do their jobs better. Um, Palav, so you uh, had a great talk earlier today, which I really enjoyed. In some sense, you're kind of the marquee success story that we have 160-year-old company figuring out how to use AI to improve the bottom line. And you talked really kind of fundamentally about uh, the need for people to own a P&L, that it wasn't really real, it was sort of a research project, unless there was a real dollars and cents on top of that, and maybe an X on somebody's back. So I assume you've got a pretty big X on your back. Um, we, we talked about talent. Can you, can you just tell us how you hire and what are the, some of the challenges you see, especially trying to hire in, in this area uh, where you're going up against the Googles and the Facebooks of the world? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I think talent is, I, I would agree, one of, a, of the bigger problems uh, for sure. And I think when you're trying to like build a team, you have to, uh, I think, think about what is it? What is the value proposition that you're offering somebody who's who's really like you know, if they are really talented, they could get a job from any of the big five, six, ten tech companies, right? And uh, I think it first starts before we look at before we ask like you know, what can you do for us? Is to first try to answer what can we do for you as talent, uh, or sorry, like as as the company is you know looking for talent. And um, I think the key value proposition that we bring first there is like you know, is the fact that you can really be very entrepreneurial at a at a large company in, in certain ways, um, and that you can have the ability to influence something end to end, versus a lot more many of the established companies, especially if you're starting off, like maybe you're two three years into data science, you would be put on like a larger team, and there's already like a built product, and you're like sort of like you know adjusting the nuts and bolts, versus like here you can you know come and build like a 
end-to-end -end recommendation system, or you can like you know change completely overhaul the way a certain business process works, right? And uh, you can actually literally see the dollar impact of your work. And so in that way, like having a PNL does help because you know. I mean, what's, what's cooler than like, you know, which one's cooler, like, you know, saying that, you know, I made this algorithm 5% more efficient or saying that I drove $2 million in criminal revenue, right? I think, depending, I guess, on, on which side of the data science aisle you are, one might be more interesting than the other, but I think uh, we try to look for like people who are really trying to drive that real world change. And I think when you start looking for people, I think the first thing we try to understand is, um, you know, um, I mean, there's like a lot of paper data scientists out there, right? Because now like data science has become the hottest thing. And so, Anyone who takes a boot camp wants to call themselves a data scientist. Not that there's anything wrong with that. We have a lot of people who came from data boot camps. But um, I think more than skill sets, do they have the right mindsets? And um, you know, I think in terms of mindsets, there's like you know, the, the mindset of like always being learning. Um, so the example I like to give all the time, and this might be a little bit contentious with some of the NLP people here, but like if you did your PhD in NLP, like let's say June 2017, a lot of what you worked on is probably already obsolete because of you know attention and uh, you know transformer architecture like which came around the scene like in like you know in November 2017. So are you really willing to like fundamentally change the way you work and you know keep learning and keep uh, growing um, and uh, be willing to adapt as the business needs change? And so I think those mindsets are really key to when we look for people and like providing that uh, you know. That, that environment for them to like grow with the company. Yeah, so it's interesting, it's sort of counterintuitive that because you're stepping into an industry that maybe doesn't have a lot of data science and AI exposure, what you're saying is that one way to attract people is they can have an outsized impact uh, on, those, on those companies. That's, that's pretty interesting. What about, what about the data and, and the mission, Jurgen? If I could ask you to speak to this from your experience in the mining industry and, and with airlines, one of the things that, that we saw uh, when we were at GE is one of the things that attracted the data science and engineering teams to our group, um, obviously other than the, the culture that we were trying to build in our teams, was this idea that the data that we were working with and the problems that we were solving had the impact on people's lives um, as people, not as consumers. And so the mission um, uh, behind that data actually becomes pretty interesting, especially if you can have a worldwide impact. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Jurgen? So that, especially in this industry, it's definitely the, the whole sustainability thinking about how to make um, a it a more sustainable, carbon-neutral business. So you can imagine the emissions these industries blowing out of their chimneys is not the nicest in the world. But even more importantly is the aspect of safety. So there's still a ton of people in dangerous places. So if you send somebody on an offshore oil rig in heavy weather conditions, the likelihood you get injured is high. If you send somebody in an underground mine, uh, a cavity collapses and thousands of tons of stone and rock comes down, it's dangerous. And if you're putting that in the heads of the data science team and say, look, what you're doing is not just manipulating some zeros and ones, you are driving people to safety or you assure that people are actually safe in what they are doing. So your algorithms become a new purpose. Um, I had recently the pleasure to be invited by the United Nations Environment uh, section where they also discuss, okay, this combination of make it cleaner and make it safer at the same time. So you can imagine that's not necessarily two paradigms which are always working simply together. And, and here the, the data science talent so even untypical data scientists we are seeing here. So normally everybody believes a data scientist has to have a statistic, statistically or mathematical degree to be good. 
we have found out there's tons of engineers who love to work with data. They learn Python coding in no time because they were tortured with Fortran in their past. So um, they found a whole new way to look at this data and make things happen where we thought before it's not possible to do. So Amr, um, we just heard about safety as, as a real sort of distinguishing characteristic of the kinds of work that needs to happen in AI, where re real value needs to come. Um, how much does safety and maybe data privacy come up in the way that you sell to these more traditional industries? And maybe just tell us more broadly about how um, you help them think about their data challenges. Yes, one of the key friction points uh, in almost all of the enterprises we work with is it's almost like they are schizophrenic, meaning they have two personalities at the same time. One personality is the innovator, data science, machine learning team that just want to keep making changes day in and day out. And then the other personality is the operators, administrators who want to minimize change. They want to make sure everything is just running 24 by 7 without ever failing. And they want to make sure it's secure and uh, fully locked down so that there is no data leakage or anything like that. And that leads to significant problems. It leads to the, the, the operators continuously saying no to the innovators. So the innovators will come in and say, hey, I would like to install this new uh, PyTorch framework on our cluster. And the operators will tell them, uh, uh, go away. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. You have to tell me why this is important. And they can they tell them, I cannot tell you how why it's important until you install it for me. And you get this deadlock where you just can't move forward. And uh, the data scientists and the innovators being a little smart and a little bit evil, uh, what they end up doing is they make copies of the data on their laptops, they go home, and then they install whatever they would like. But then you get data leakage, and you lose the provenance and the lineage of, of the data. So that was a very core uh, issue that we observed in our customer base about five years ago. And we start to attack head-on. So we, we built a, a framework, the Cloudera Machine Learning Framework, that attacks that problem. How to manage the workflow of uh, getting the operators to be able to say yes to the innovators, enable them to uh, be agile, enable them to install the latest and greatest without compromising the safety, reliability, and security of the operational environments. So how can you have multiple staging environments and a workflow that goes through all of that so that the algorithm can be tried out with the data without the data being compromised in terms of security? And if, if the algorithm works, then how can we quickly deploy it if the algorithm does not work, how can we throw it away and move on to the next one? And that's uh, the key challenge that we observed and that we focused on addressing. From a build versus buy perspective, um, you know, and Palav, I'll ask you to sort of answer this because you you kind of built uh, a really nice system yourself. You know, are we at the stage now where during the evaluation process, people are going to start asking those questions around safety and security and privacy of data uh, in it? almost from an SLA perspective of you know, asking, asking providers to give them guarantees. I mean, we ask of, we ask of that of our uh, you know, platforms at the AWS and, and Google level, but are we going to also start asking that of solutions level? Um, so maybe you could speak a little bit to um, how you think about some of these uh, challenges around data, and then also maybe kind of address how you decided your kind of build by, um, how, that, how that formulated. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, data security is for sure paramount. And uh, our chief uh, AI officer, Katya Walsh, likes to call data like uranium in, in certain ways where, you know, you can get a lot of value out of it. But if you don't contain it properly, it can really hurt people. 
Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, you know, uh, if I think some of the speakers before, uh, they mentioned like, you know, ISO compliance, SOC compliance, um, GDPR compliance, right. Especially if you're a global business. So we take that very seriously. And like, you know, I think whenever you, so I think what we do is that anytime we work with a specific provider, we have, um, a questionnaire that has been sort of pre-approved by like different teams. So we have information security and like, you know, DevOps and, you know, data science. And so these are standard questions that we just send out to like, you know, before we even like have the first meeting with them that we need answers to these things before we even like, you know, invite you to like have like a 30 minute conversation with us. So, um, and what that does is that, you know, yes, it does maybe filter out some of the more new and exciting technologies and some new providers that, you know, you might, uh, sort of want to work with, uh, but it doesn't work out, uh, which is fine. But I think uh, at the end of the day, like for a large company like us, like in you know, our brand and our, our reputation is everything. So, you know, um, we don't want to like sacrifice the band, brand equity just for, just to like have one team move fast. So I think there's a little bit of that tempering of the expectations that we have to do. So, uh, but yeah, I think a questionnaire, sad questionnaire that's been approved really helps. Um, it takes a while to prepare to get everyone on the same page and acknowledge like these are the right questions to ask. Um, and like, we need to have like six monthly reviews about the questionnaire, et cetera. But that's one thing we use and that has really helped us like weed out, uh, providers, which might not necessarily meet certain needs. Um, when it comes to the buy versus build, I think I, um, uh, Cassie Kozerkov, uh, actually has this great blog about, uh, um, sort of, are you in the business of, you know, making pizzas or are you in the business of like building microwave ovens? Right. Um, and so one of the key things there is that we, I think the way we like to think about it is like, what are the core capabilities for the business? Like, you know, as let's say as Levi's or, you know, any, like, you know, let's say company, what are the things that you feel or, or that we feel as a business are core capabilities we should own? Because those are things that we will always uh, keep improving. And those are things that we'll always keep working on. And those are like the key differentiators for us. So like, for example, if we came up with a new cloud environment, you know, let's say we had a, a Levi's cloud, right, that we're trying to make it public. That's not the business we are in. Your so, stock just went up, actually. <laughs> I mean, then I would do like something like Levi's Bitcoin, right? <laughs> uh, but um, it's like, that's not the business we are in. Like, we're not in the business of like, you know, building, you know, a new TensorFlow or something, right? You know, might as well just use everything uh, out of the box um, and uh, not really focus on like, you know, rebuilding things that already exist. But when it comes to the core capabilities, um, how we do business, like what are the, let's say, you know, um, how do we recommend products to people? Um, how do we uh, inform how our products are designed? It's like those are things that are core differentiators for us and we want to keep that, you know, Good. process internal. So, so Jürgen, um, you have this amazing vantage point of, of uh, getting to work with a bunch of companies in, in some of these heavy industrial industries. Um, as they think about build by, as they think about um, sort of growing things up from the grassroots, um, and ultimately as they think about the success of extracting value from AI in their in their company, um, what have you seen that works, and what have you seen that that doesn't work? So at the moment, it's a little bit of of, of cycles. So there is like six oil and gas super majors in. Um, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. They follow each other. So two years ago, they were in the cycle of let's buy everything and just plug it in and it's going to work. So, yeah, that's a dream um, because their processes are too complicated. The data landscape is too complicated. You can just say plug in a solution and it's going to work. So um, they learned that the hard way. I would say they blasted a billion of a couple of billions of dollars. 
say it hasn't worked, so now they made a step back and says, okay, we need to find what they call a hybrid approach between what can we actually buy off the shelf, like Cloudera solutions, um, um, and what do we have to, to build ourselves? Because, um, Levi said, we need to keep our personality. That's what we are doing. So it is finding this balance. And then more importantly, what they have missed so far, they were all looking on building things, but they were not looking at how to de derive sustainable value. So then that's now something new is coming in where they're all scratching their heads and say, what do we have to put in that all these machine learning solutions can sustainably deliver value now? It's not just building it. Okay, there's one suite of tools and stuff you need. There is now a new challenge, um, how to turn it from what we always call the playground, where you stitch all the stuff together into a scaled and delivery environment. And here is, at the moment, there's not an, a uniform opinion in the market. So if you go to Microsoft, they will tell you A. If you go to Google, they tell you B. And if you go to Amazon, they tell you C. And so you be back to field one, you don't really know what should I do. So it's, it's experimentation, how to get it from the lab into a scaled delivery. So as, as Maleva's colleague said here, is at the end of the day, I need someone who owns the P&L and adds the value to it. And so that's, this is especially with off-the-shelf products in this business is extremely complicated because they are not specifically made what, the, what these guys need. So hence they tend to use smart data scientists to build tailored solutions on top of standard products. I, 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 I want to add also, like, within the off-the-shelf products, there's actually two categories as well. So there's the black box categories, meaning we'll do everything for you. Just give us the data, the business objective, and a shitload of money, and we will do it for you. Uh, there's a company, I'm not going to say their name, they start with a P and end with a tear, and uh, <laughs> that's kind of their business model. And, and, and that, I think that works. That works when you are uh, only uh, trying to optimize a sideline part of your business. But if they are going to do that for your core, like if you're an insurance company and we're going to optimize your insurance pricing for you, you're mortgaging your future. Like, like that's what you should be good at. Like if, the, if there's an area you should be doing yourself, it's that and not giving it away. And that's where I think the, the open box approaches are much more uh, appropriate. So you, you both sort of spoke to the need for a, the core competency of what it is that your company does and how it makes money. That's where you want to attach your data scientists. That's where you want to attach your big AI initiatives. That's where you want to attach your um, new technology. How much are you all seeing in your respective worlds, not just that, um, but also saying, how can we transform our business to something new? So if we're selling a product, now instead let's sell outcomes as a service. Um, uh, if we're selling a service, can we do something else where we're providing better and better value and creating all those positive feedback loops with data? Who's doing this in the, in the industrial world? Who's actually fundamentally changing, not just uh, the efficiencies at, at, at how they sell and the talent that they, they bring on, but who's changing fundamentally who they are? And maybe nobody is a fine answer, but um, you know, you're all exposed to, uh, to this in various different ways. So I think one example that I've seen is uh, TD Bank. Um, again, I don't own any stock with them, so this is not an advertisement of uh, TD Bank. But I think I read articles, at least, about uh, them sort of open sourcing some of their technology 
And when you think about open source and technology, like you think of like the Googles, the Ubers, the Facebooks, uh, but you don't necessarily think of like traditional enterprises. Um, and I think there's a reason for that, which is like open source is um, sort of a very scary term for a lot of traditional IT organizations, especially when you talk about like open sourcing your own technology, because there have been incidents like where somebody made a git commit and like, you know, like and accidentally like, you know, committed their their, their secret pass key or like, you know, their their you know, their, their public key or something. Uh, and that has led to consequences, right? So I think when you talk about some of those uh, uh, traditional companies, like it's really hard for some of these open, like some of these initiatives to become open source. So I think there are probably companies which are reinventing themselves, but there's like a, like as I think some of the uh, people like to call it the great filter of, of IT where you can't necessarily open source things. But I think TDM or like TD Bank has done some good work there. Um, and I know Domino's has done some work there as well where they have open source some of the technology. Yeah, so that's maybe an aspect of it, but who's, you know, Domino's is still making money on pizza. Who who else out there in the in the in industrial world is actually transforming the way in which they, they make money? Everybody does. Like this, this I'm biased. I'm sorry, I, should, I need to say that first. But this movement about machine learning, we all agree it's about the automation of decisions, right? It's about learning how humans make decisions at scale and then leverage machine lear learning to automate that at a cost and at a frequency that is just not humanly possible. So I'll give you an example. There's many, but Lufthansa technique for maintaining airlines they automated the task of diagnosing problems based on the notes that, uh, that the pilots write, the, the, the sensors and the doors and the wheels and so on, fully automated uh, right now using this technology. Uh, another example would be JP Morgan where they built a system called COIN that was able to replace lawyers in how they review contracts and write new contracts automatically uh, based on historical decisions that lawyers have made in the past, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many of these, uh, so I think all businesses are changing their way, uh, the, the way that they make money and do business by leveraging this technology. So I think the most fundamental changes I see is in the oil and gas business. So been, as it says, oil and gas. So these guys made their money and they made fortunes of money of oil and gas. But when you look in all the super majors, so there's one company called Equinor, or we most know them under Stutt Oil. They changed their name to call out we are going away from oil and gas into renewable. And that means they have to completely reinvent their business model. So they can no longer operate as they did the last 100 years where they were living a fortune uh, of oil. So now they are in a process of a digital transformation where they are going now to say, okay, we are creating hydrogen cycles to produce energy. We start to do uh, battery trading. So it's like the battery storage becomes the new oil and thus forces them to, to reinvent and nobody has done battery trading so far actively in the market. So it's, it's completely new. So they have to figure out how do we trade it? Where do we trade it? How do we, we build better batteries to store energy longer? So these guys are really standing in front of a, a transformation which is not just digital, it's fundamentally changing what they have done the last hundred next years. Is that is that driven by a carrot or a stick in some sense? Is that driven by a, an, a, a sense of existential threat that if they don't change their business model, somebody else will and they'll go away? Or is that saying, hey, there's this big opportunity here and we have a, we have a chance to grab part, part of this market? I mean, obviously it's two sides of the same coin, but from a selling perspective, is a CEO making a decision 
uh, to go that sort of fundamentally new direction based on you know that deep concern or that sort of uh, other side of it? So when you look at the oil and gas reserves, it's not necessary to do that. Uh, not even in the next 50 years, because we, we saw they're doing lifetime extension projects to extend their assets for the next 50 years. So it clearly says there's enough uh, resources to not do that. But they are exposed to a, um, a society pressure and, and sustainable and, and environmental pressure. So if you want to be a CEO of an oil and gas company, you don't want to be the dude who is polluting the environment constantly. So um, that level of pressure, as I said, Equinor changed even their name. So you don't do that lightly, and a CEO doesn't take put a lot of money, it costs them $25 million to find a new name. So it's not a cheap exercise. But it, it's really here the pressure by society which made these guys rethink, and by rethinking they have to fundamentally change. And that is obviously an opportunity. Is uh, AI... In an existential threat to Levi's, um, or is it uh, an enhancer that's going to allow you to leapfrog for another 150 years? Um, I think we look at it as an enhancer, um, you know, mainly because, you know, the, the field that we are in, you know, again, I, I, I can't see in the next few years Levi's becoming a, a, you know, the core product being machine learning technology and not genes, um, or, or apparel, I should say, not genes only. Smart genes, uh, trademark. <laughs> Well, and we are doing a little bit of that, right? So I think we just did a launch uh, for our Jacquard jacket, which is like a connected jacket. And like, you know, it has a, uh, you know, like the sleeve actually acts almost like a touchscreen in some ways. Um, unfortunately, I don't have it on me today, but uh, happy to do a demo at some time. But uh, the point being that, you know, it's it's not just about like, you know, the, the company itself, right? It's about like, at the end of the day, like, you know, are we creating value for our customers? Um, and are we making the customer experience better in some way, shape or form? So that could be through products which have embedded technology in them. That could be through running a business in a way where, you know, we are making certain decisions that might have just led to analysis paralysis if we had a bunch of people doing it. So it, it really is looked upon as a, as, a, as a way to transform and set the company in the right track for the next 160 years. Amr? It is an existential threat, even for Levi's, right? So uh, the AI revolution is just like the industrial revolution, right? If Levi's hadn't adapted to moving from making, uh, I'm wearing Levi's right now, to making the, the pants using your hand versus using them with, with machines, Levi's would be dead right now. We all agree on that. And the companies and the countries that were able to uh, embrace the industrial revolutions, they became the, the, the future leaders of the, of the world. And the same exact thing is going to happen with this. So uh, I'm biased again. I was just there because I'm selling the technology that's doing this. But every, I mean, 20 years from now, every single organization that excels at this will be the ones that survives, and and those that don't will be the ones that fail. And I think Andrew uh, shared the same feedback in the, in the morning session as well. Great. So um, unfortunately, I didn't drum up enough controversy here, um, but I want to give the panelists the last sort of 20 seconds each just to um, give us their parting thoughts on what we just discussed and what you think this audience should know going forward. One of the core aspects of this succeeding is the ability to manage workflows that allow machine learning and AI iterations to happen very quickly from research, A-B testing, quality assurance and security, production, cycle, and repeat. And uh, that's one of the very key missions that we are focused on enabling for our customers. Um, so one of the things that I, uh, I really, we really do as an exercise is that anytime we come up with a new project or a new project comes on our 
radar. We try to uh, sort of see where it fits under the umbrella of you know consumer desirability, business viability, and technical feasibility. And true magic happens when all three meet, where your data scientists are intellectually challenged by the problem, your customers are delighted by the problem, and the business is making money from it. So I think those are the best, you know, most fertile ground for, you know, for anyone who's trying to enter the field. Jurgen, last word. So yeah, uh, for me, it's very simple. Um, AI becomes the new net, uh, new when it derives value and when it attracts the people to create the value. So it's really the, the fusion of, you have a fancy idea, and you can, can translate this fancy idea in net new value, which drives the business, but even more importantly, also goes beyond the business into the society and makes uh, the customers of this entity happy. Great. Well, with that, uh, let's thank our uh, panelists again. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's show or any of our panelists, visit twomoai.com slash shows. Head over to twomocon.com slash news to check out Twomocon Shorts, a series of short interviews recorded straight from the Twomocon Community Hall. Peace.